Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to Sermons with Rabbi David Seth Kirchner, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, everyone. I want to thank all of you for being here with us tonight, and I want to make a special thank you and pause to Brad and Susan Singer, who enabled our speaker, David Gregory, to be with us. Uh, Brad and Susan are synagogue regulars, both in Arminian, on Shabbat morning, and all types of activities, and it's no wonder that both of you continue to stand up and say, Hineni, here I am, to make a difference for our community and enrich our minds and our souls, and we are all indebted to you, and we appreciate your generosity now and always. Thank you. It is uh, my great great privilege and honor tonight to introduce our speaker who I will be in conversation with. David Gregory's career in journalism began when he was 18 years young. Over the last 25 years, his work has taken him across the country and around the world. He is now a political analyst on CNN and the host of the David Gregory podcast featuring interviews with newsmakers and thought leaders. And as someone who subscribes to this podcast, I highly, highly recommend that you do the same. He's best known for his nearly 20 years at NBC News, where David served for six years as the moderator of Meet the Press and chief White House correspondent during the entire presidency of George W. Bush. As a correspondent, David covered the trials of O.J. Simpson and the Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh, as well as other breaking news around the country, and it was through that coverage that led you to find your Bashert. David contributed anchoring duties to all the network's major programs, including Today, Nightly News, and served as a political analyst. David traveled with President Bush on 9-11 and during President Bush's first visit to Ground Zero after the attacks of 9-11. From the White House, David Gregory covered the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and earned a reputation as the toughest questioner in the press corps. At Meet the Press, David scored a string of exclusive interviews generating headlines across the world including the interview with Vice President Joe Biden, which represented a major shift by the administration on gay marriage. David also broadcast from Afghanistan after conducting the first interview with General David Petraeus once he took up his position, leading U.S. forces there. During the 2012 campaign, he moderated a debate among the Republican candidates as part of a special broadcast and conducted interviews with numerous foreign heads of state. David was a staple of the network's special coverage at NBC, anchoring the breaking news of Osama bin Laden's capture and death and was a key player in election night coverage spanning four presidential cycles. David currently serves as a member of the Dean's Advisory Board for American University School of International Service and serves on the board of Martha's Table, a nonprofit organization dedicated to strengthening families and feeding the poor in Washington, D.C. He lives in Washington, D.C. with his three children and his wife, Beth Wilkinson, who is a litigator. It is my distinct honor to welcome to Temple Emmanuel and to our community, David Gregory. No. Janine, we don't have 
stools doing? If David sits down, you'll have no trouble seeing him. Uh, David's one of the tallest Jews I've met. Um, <laughs> me, on the other hand, all of you know what I look like. So what we thought we'd do, we'll, tr we'll start sitting down. But knowing all of you, you won't hesitate to say, I can't see you. I can't hear you. So if you can't see us and you can't hear us and you prefer we stand, we'd be more than happy to stand. Is that okay if we do that? Start by sitting. All right. You prefer we stand? You want the standing right away? <laughs> Hard. They're not going to be able to see. Okay, that's fine. We'll stand. And no one should ever question your DNA as a Jew. <laughs> this is either either we, we can talk or we can sing since we're at this. <laughs> Scary. Yeah, that's right. David Gregory and the Israelites. Hello. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Before we do begin our formal interview, David, I have a... Uh, a small present for you from our congregation. Uh, we just gave you the nickel tour of our synagogue yeah. and showed you its uh, incredible splendor and beauty, which you noticed upon arrival. And you saw the dome in our main sanctuary from the Brooklyn Jewish Center, which represents our past, but also our present and our future. And this kippah is a replica of that dome that was handmade. And we hope that you that wear it in good health for many years and always remember oh, us at Temple Emmanuel. thank you very much. I'm honored by that. I absolutely will wear it. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Okay, can we jump into some questions? Let's do it. Okay. So can everybody see? <laughs> I should say, I mean, this is, you know, for a long time until I wrote this book and it wasn't a secret anymore, I would speak in front of Jewish audiences and I would make a point of saying, you know, yes, I am. <laughs> because everybody, you know, would say, I didn't know he was Jewish. <laughs> He's so tall. <laughs> and what kind of name is Gregory? <laughs> so I, you know, I like to get that. Yes, actually Jewish. Irish right. mother. So David, you wrote this amazing book, which, uh, which I have read. My wife has devoured. My mother is, couldn't believe I was meeting with you tonight. <laughs> I think she was the, dealing with the most jealousy of all. Um, and it's inspired from a question that was, asked of you by President George W. Bush, where he asked you about your faith. Yeah. He's a very faith-based person. So I wanted you to talk to us a little bit, if you will, about your faith. Uh, but in particular, talk to us about what your faith was like 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, and talk a little bit about where it is today and the journey in particular that you've been on and what being Jewish means to you in that journey. Yeah, I mean, look, I think you know, growing up as I did in Los Angeles, I grew up like a lot of Jews around the country, culturally Jewish, ethnically Jewish, just Jewish. Um, and because, you know, being the product of an interfaith marriage um, with the last name Gregory, which my father changed from Ginsburg, uh, if I didn't self-identify, you know, I bet nobody in this room would know I was Jewish. That is distinct, you know? I mean, that has an impact on, I think, my own, and my own sense of identity. But I didn't have any real faith to speak of. And um, again, I think not. Oh, look there at that. Wow. Whoa. Let's hear it for the bridal suite. I think that comes from. <laughs> well, wait, but what's going to happen to you? I'll be okay. Don't worry. Okay. Oh, okay, good. This, is, uh, this gets more intimate. I'll, I'll hang out by the buffet, David. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Uh, let me just, uh, yeah, I just want to get this right. Um, yeah, no, I'm just, I'm playing around with it. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So anyway, the point is that I, I, I 
I didn't have any real belief. I didn't have any kind of relationship with God. I don't think I wasn't even particularly knowledgeable about Judaism. I was bar mitzvahed. Um, but I think what was striking as I look back on my life is kind of all right. Thank you. I was you had me at the kippah, but now. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, just. I, looking back at my life when I was younger, I think is kind of the absence of God. You know, the absence of God during difficult times, the absence of, of being able to have a, a presence in my life. And I think, for me, the biggest change, having a kind of awakening, I think, I think a lot of us go through times in our lives through joy or through pain or through transition where we take a closer look at this, that transition could be becoming parents. Um, thinking about, well, what does it mean to be a person of faith? What does it mean to be Jewish? And so I think for me, um, that awakening uh, got me thinking about, well, what does it mean to be Jewish, to, to have a sense of Jewish purpose? Um, and where is God? You know, I think I, I like to talk about God in a way that a lot of Jews don't. And I like to talk about God in front of Jews, especially to be provocative. Because I think we deliberately leave God out of the equation. And that was never the point, in my view. And however you understand God, for me, the question of where is God and understanding that relationship animates my faith and my identity more than anything else. So let me ask you this as a follow-up, David. You, you grew up in a blended family, you just told us. Yes. And you have a blended family. You met Beth. You. Uh, Beth was a prosecutor who was prosecuting Timothy McVeigh. Right. Uh, after the Oklahoma City bombings, you met her while you were covering uh, that trial, um, and you fell in love. You're married. She is a Methodist. You have three kids, mm-hmm. and uh, your children have been a mitzvah. Uh, you're a member of a Reform synagogue. Talk to me about the differences between the blended family you grew up in and the blended family you're creating with Beth. Well, I think there's much more Jewish identity in our family, so uh, I think we understand that as a Jewish family, there are values. There's a uh, belief system. There are commitments that we make. Um, and I hope there's a broader base of understanding what it means to be Jewish, what it means to be a person of faith, and how to respect the differences. Um, so if we're celebrating Pesach, we understand that there's universal values of loving the neighbor of yourself and welcoming the stranger. And even I, I, want, I lead a... I lead a Seder every year and reflected on the Beatitudes and Jesus' message and Sermon on the Mount and how much that has to teach us about our own foundational traditions um, about celebrating Pesach um, in the way that we do. So I think, you know, and in, in our ritual observance of Shabbat um, around a kind of a kind of celebration. Our, our friend David Ingber, who's a who's a rabbi in New York, he says, you know, he said Jews have a trinity as well. Um, he said that it's a uh, a yearning, a learning, and a turning, and and so we yearn for that that connection to God. Um, we we learn from our sacred texts, and we turn kind of outside of ourselves to help other people. Some of that, the yearning piece, is a celebration of the wow aspect of prayer. And I think that's what Shabbat is about, is to say, wow, 
isn't life great? I mean, look what God has created. Look at what we've created in our lives and in our family, and how do we celebrate that? That's a universal value that my Christian wife can very much identify with, and it reminds her of her own upbringing. So that, to me, is important. So I, I guess, you know, yes, there's more ritual observance, there's more knowledge, and there's a greater, a greater sense of how our Judaism is a part of who we are and how we act in the world. So let me push you a little bit on God. It's, it's very awkward for me, you know, asking questions to one of the most respected journalists uh, <laughs> in the world. So uh, I mean that with all, with all humility. And, and uh, so, so I hope it comes across in the, in the um, spirit in which I share this question, which is you, you pushed us on God. And we talked before about belief in God and getting comfortable talking about God. And as a whole, we don't talk about God. All right, if I give a sermon about Israel, you know, the Richter scale will, will ring much higher than one about faith in God. And people feel a different sense of resonance with that. So most of the times when we're asked about God, it has to do in the wake of tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harold Kushner, um, no relation to, to the other Kushner family, he... Uh, <laughs> He became very well-known in the book he wrote, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, because his son suffered from progeria, and he started to address this issue. And what I try to respond to people is, don't ask where is God in these tragedies, ask when is God? When do you feel God's presence? When do you feel more connected? So my question to you is, are you comfortable sharing a little bit about how you got on this journey with God? Um, and what traumas there might have been in that process or the celebrations that were brought to light? And when do you feel God? When is God most present in your life? Well, I mean, I can, I can give you a couple of examples, but I think, first of all, there's an orientation. We were talking, and I write about um, Joel Osteen, the pastor Joel Osteen, and I asked him, you know, what do you say to people who are asking themselves the question, how's my faith? And he said, you know, I just, when I encounter somebody like you who's on a kind of spiritual quest, I say, it's just important to have a heart for God. And I thought about that. I thought, okay, well, so what does that mean, to have a heart for God? To me, it's an openness to receive. You know, like any loving relationship, you've got to work at it. You know, you've got to cultivate it. And it just doesn't come like that. There has to be an openness to God in our life. And as Jews, we think about, oh, well, we don't talk about God. I don't know if I believe in the whole thing. And yet, on the high holidays, on our holiest days, when we read the Psalms in Shul and we read Psalm 27, what are we yearning for? We're yearning to see God's face, that we might have a panim a panim relationship, a face-to-face relationship with God like Moses did. And the psalm goes on to say that even if my parents should cast me out, God will gather me in. So, so intimate is our relationship meant to be that even if our parents should cast us out, God is there to gather us in. God is there to walk with us, to reset our life. So I think, you know, it's well known. I I got fired from NBC, lost my job. It was very public. It was painful. It was... uh, you know, I'd been very successful, and I went through a very difficult path. And I think I, I felt like I sort of had it under control because I was on a faith path, and I knew what was important, and I had perspective. But that wasn't enough. It didn't carry me enough. I was really, I, I, I suffered a deep wound and a loss of identity and a sense of, well, 
then who am I? If I'm not that guy, then does, do I matter to anybody? And I struggled with that, and I made mistakes. And I think in the process of that humiliating experience, the experience of, A, understanding that my life was small, that who, who am I not to experience that kind of setback um, that's normal for anyone to experience a setback in their life, but also to go through pain and difficulties and to understand, as the psalm says, that we may walk through the valley of death. And by the way, this was nothing like death. This was a professional death, and it sucked, but it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't cancer. I have, you know, a lot of money. You know, I mean, there's, there's, not, there's lots of ways it could have been so much worse, but it was tough. So we may walk through this valley, but we don't stay there. And the process of God resetting your life was, I think, what I experienced there. And that was... Um, and that was very important to me. And I'll tell you one other instance, which I think is very powerful. So if there's an openness, if there's a relationship that we work through prayer where we talk about, you know, holding God up above me and all things that I do and being mindful of how I act and, and, and how I speak and how the effort I make to see God in everyone I encounter, which I fail a lot at. But if we think of the idea that, and like we read in Bereshit, that we are created in the image of God, and that refrain is repeated three times in a kind of rap, a lyrical poetry, that, that God makes us in his image so that we never forget that when we look at each other, that we see God within us. So this notion of, of where is God in any situation, in joy, in the birth of a child, in a b'nai mitzvah, in a wedding, uh, in the comfort in death. So the day before my father died, he had had a very difficult night at home and couldn't really sleep all night. And I was leaving after he was laid out on the couch. I helped feed him the next day, that morning, and he was laid out on the couch, and I had to go home to D.C. And I said, Dad, I said, um, a little backdrop here is that and I write about this in the book, my father and I had had a difficult relationship at times in my life. I was really afraid of him when I was a kid, and we were estranged at, at certain points as an adult. And we'd worked through that, and he was not comfortable with the book uh, initially, but then really enthralled by my religious search because it was not something that he understood in many ways. And I said to him as I was leaving, I said, Dad, I have to go now. I said, and I, I really hope to see you again. I said, but if you should die before I return, I just want you to know that I love you and that my heart is full and that there's nothing left unsaid between us. And I just feel so lucky that you've been my father. And I did something that I, that I would have never done growing up, Lord knows. I took out my sidur and I held his hand and I prayed Adon Alam with him. Into your hands my soul I place when I awake and when I sleep. God is with me, I shall not fear. Body and soul from harm shall he keep. And he looked at me with a kind of weak smile and a little tear in his eye, and he said, that was beautiful. And I said, so um, I got to go. I said, I'll see you soon or I'll see you in the world to come, but either way, I'll see you. Uh, and he died the next day. And the beauty in that parting for me was that sometimes language alone isn't enough. Sometimes through prayer, we reach a level of communication that's like dancing and not speaking. And I have no doubt 
that God was present in that moment. Because that moment of joy in the parting is what sustains me still. Wow, that was beautiful. Thank you. Um, there was a piece of your book uh, that captured me when, um, when you were dealing with your transition and position. And an insider who's nameless in the book uh, gave you some unsolicited counsel in a note. And it was so impactful that you yeah. included in your redaction. And it said that it's during these times you find out who your real friends and who your fake friends are yeah. and how important your real friends really matter and how valuable they are. And the second component that was in there was that in most instances, uh, people who are made of, of serious cloth rise above this and strengthens the fabric of who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I'm a fan of all of these shows, uh, I am a chassid of yours, and it's clear mm-hmm. that that has happened in this process, and it's clearly NBC's loss. The other thing that I would tell you is that uh, what you represented with your father in that closing moment is a gorgeous, powerful Jewish ritual of vidui, of making a sense of tshuva so that the backpack that your father brings into the world to come and the backpack you live every day with mm-hmm. uh, is loaded with less regret and more feelings of fullness. And, that's and I, think that I think the idea, by the way, of cultivating the relationship with God, because I do think it's not easy and, and we understand God at different levels, but sometimes it's more accessible than maybe I'm describing it. You know, my language is a lot more God-saturated than it ever was. Um, and to some people that can be a little much like that's, you know, I'm not in that place and I don't really respond to that, but there's different ways to, I guess, think about it in our, in our Sidurim, we have, um, some wonderful meditations that are about seeking a quiet heart, seeking a quiet mind. Those are moments that I think we can all identify with when we got the monkeys in the brain and we're stressed out and all of that. And what we seek is a kind of quiet I think God is in those moments, and I think that it, there's an appeal to God and to a greater serenity that is accessible through working that relationship. And we know in Judaism that there's a lot of fencing that goes on, that we we have a lot of fencing around behavior, around speech, um, in order to protect us from uh, from our human urges, which are often flawed, you know, saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, uh, you know, and so, again, that's a way I think about cultivating that relationship, too. So let me ask you a, a closing question on God, which is, I forgot who said it, but someone said, I was rich and I was poor, and it's much better to be rich. And in my case, I was fat and I was skinny. It's much better to be skinny. Uh, you lived a life that was seeking faith and a life full of faith. How has your life changed as a result of being a faith-based person? Are you a different father? Are you a different husband? Are you a different professional? Um, are you different internally? Yeah, so, I mean, it speaks to a question when people think, oh, well, you know, you're on this faith path, so you've got it all figured out, and it's uh, not at all the case. Um, and, and I guess one of the downsides of what I would say is that I'm more spiritually aware, which can mean that I'm fully aware of how often I screw it up um, and and how difficult the path is. Um but I love what the Bible says in Deuteronomy about choosing life, that we should choose life and live. And that, as we say in the high holidays, it's, God, God doesn't want to punish us for our sinful behavior. It's just that, he, that God would like us to turn from that way and to live and to choose a more righteous path. I, I guess I have a fuller sense of who I am. And that I believe 
and again, I express it this way because I've come to experience this grace, is that I have, um, I have, I have come to kind of grow into God um, in, in a way that creates a, a spiritual awareness and fulfillment and a deeper sense of who I am most fully um, in all its humility, in all its smallness, that I have that sense. And with that, I can more easily remind myself when I get off the path. I can try to forgive myself when I make terrible mistakes that cause me pain and others pain. And um, that, I, that I'm in that relationship. I love Annie Lamont, the writer, talks about God, lo- God loves us the way we are, but loves us too much for us to stay this way. And so I guess I feel like I'm in a constant state of transition and being on the path, that, that the, the path of turning, turning in the, in the kind of direction that's full of reflection and, uh, and prayer and seeking. Um, yeah, it's changed my life, made me, made me happier, fuller, and I hope better in, in ways in terms of how I interact with people and in, in how I um, think about the world. So uh, I'm going to make a pivot um, to a little bit of politics, if that's okay with you, um, your day job. Mm-hmm. Uh, today would mark, uh, for some people in our world, in our community, the end of Shiva. Uh, it's been seven <laughs> days. Right. <laughs> it has been uh, seven days since uh, the election of Donald Trump as President of the United States. For others in this room and in our community and in the world, it is the end of Sheva Brachot. So after someone is married in Judaism, we have seven days where we recite blessings of joy and thanksgiving upon them uh, for a period. Now what's interesting is those two cycles of seven days are meant to be polarities. They are polarities because for a married couple, you are at your height of elation, and for a grieving person, you're at your lowest point. And in both cases, it is the community that brings you back to an equilibrium. So regardless if you're on a high, a euphoric high, or a painful low, this is the time where the next phase kicks into place. So my question for you, fully understanding the incredible divide in our country that is almost straight down the middle, is like a black and white cookie, um, not literally as... as uh, one would laying out on the map, but as far as the, el- the electorate is, 78% of people in America woke up shocked yeah. in the morning when Donald Trump was elected. So here's my question, in your expert opinion, how did Donald Trump win the election? And why did Donald Trump win the election? Well, and, and by the way, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt you there. You could ask the same question in the inverse, which is how did Hillary Clinton lose it and why did Hillary Clinton lose the election? This was a change election. Donald Trump represented radical change, and Hillary Clinton did not. End of story. And sometimes we make things more complicated when they're not. Uh, And that was it. And that was it the whole time. He was also, and is, unqualified and not temperamentally fit to be president by a, a, a view held by a majority of Americans and held by a large percentage of people who voted for him, 
which means this was a change election and he represented radical change and she did not. So people were willing to take a flyer on him and abide by some of what they found to be off-putting in order to really shake things up because people are hurting, because they're frustrated, because they don't see a way out. They, don't, they think that the system, whether it's the electoral system, the economy, big institutions don't deliver, the economy's rigged against them. People feel like, you know, nobody's delivering. And so he, he represented that kind of change. The shock factor in the political class and the media is frankly elitism. It's cultural elitism. And it's an unwillingness to believe what was right in front of us. There was a brush fire on the right and on the left, represented by Bernie Sanders, on the right represented by Donald Trump, a populism that takes many forms. There is a white lash element to it. There is a, a uh, kind of you know, white nationalist, America first element to it. But that's not the only thing. There's a lot of people who voted for President Obama who voted for President-elect Trump. These are people who are probably disappointed with Obama and didn't think he represented the kind of change or delivered the change that he promised and that his presidency uh, held the promise of. And there was a lot of energy that Donald Trump uh, brilliantly and uniquely harnessed uh, in order to challenge the establishment. He literally did it by overperforming among non-college educated white men. He won them by margins in certain parts of the country that exceeded the total in that group that Ronald Reagan had in 1984 when he won 49 states. Wow. It's unbelievable. And nobody, the reason everybody got that wrong is because even in the modeling, nobody predicted that he could do that well. They knew he'd do well, just not that well. Why didn't Hillary win? Because Democrats didn't vote for her. That's why because everybody thought the Access Hollywood tape and all the rest would mean that women would never vote for him. Well, women vote based on party affiliation, not on gender. And if you wanted a reminder of that, then you know the gender gap here was 13 points, which it typically is in favor of the Democrat. The number of non-college educated white women who voted for him was greater than that difference between the women and men overall. So it was a big class distinction among women in terms of who voted uh, for her versus him. Latinos came out in bigger numbers, as would be suggestive by the, poly, uh, by the uh, population, uh, but she didn't win a big enough percentage. African-American turnout was, uh, was down. So her coalition didn't come out. The Jim Comey revelation certainly had an impact. We can unpack that a little bit, but there's no question that that stopped her momentum. It was completely inappropriate and was a contributing factor to why she lost. And we should remember in, in a victory like this that is shocking and that has the country reeling, you know, it was like this, right? A couple of other things happen, it's like this, and she wins. The country's closely divided in that regard. He got fewer votes than Mitt Romney did. Uh, uh, in 2012, but he got a much higher percentage of working class whites. Wow. So you touched on this a little bit, um, but can we dive a little deeper into what did the media miss on this? Um, and it, it, it isn't CNN, it isn't, it's everyone yeah. you know, missed this uh, one. 
And I'm curious to know why they missed this, what, what was off on this, and why were they so laser, almost pinpoint when it came to the primaries? Yeah. But on general, they really, you know, couldn't have been more off. Like, well, nobody, know, nobody Virginia knew. was, a, was, was a, a bull of water for all of us because we thought it was a 12-point margin and ended up yeah. being a one-point margin or two. Well, first of all, I would say the national polls were not actually off by much, maybe a couple points. The state polls were always tight and they were within the margin of error. These algorithms that are used for these predictive sites, you know, 538 and so many people are enamored of, um, you know, that modeling was certainly off. And look, I think the media is too interested in predicting outcomes. And we're all, we all want to know. We don't want surprises. Tell me who's going to win. And now there's data and the campaigns rely upon this data to predict who will win, to predict who's an Obama voter, who's a Clinton voter, how to reach them. It's all become such a fine point. And here comes Donald Trump barreling through, using his celebrity, using social media, using the power of convening to, uh, to spread something that was much more personality-driven and which much more uh, about kind of tapping into grassroots energy. So I, I, I think the media missed him in the course of the primaries. The media is much more establishment in its thinking. It's much more conventional. It's elitist. It's, uh, it's East Coast-based. Um, we don't spend enough time or money listening to voters the way we used to. Uh, and again, we're too enamored of predicting outcomes instead of listening and illuminating and uh, you know, digging into issues. Now, it doesn't mean that that stuff doesn't happen. You know, there's a lot of coverage of issues, uh, a lot of great journalism out there, but there's also a lot of crap. And there's a lot of advocacy, and, there's a, and we all make decisions about our view of the world and how to validate that view of the world through the information that we choose to come to us. We can tailor what comes to us, and we can filter out all the rest. You don't have to hear from anybody you don't want to hear from. And in doing that, we become, I think, closed off. And I think the media really represented that. We, myself included, looking at all this, wow, this is tight. You know, what are all these problems? And we just thought, but there's no way he can win. Why? Because who would vote for him? Because he's, no, but it's like, you know, because, uh, because all the patterns of our of political history would say, no, you can't say those things and, and get women to vote for you. You can't say those things and have any blacks or Latinos vote for you. It's like, there's no way. And then he kept, and so a lot of people, uh, Maureen Dowd had a great line, which is the media took him literally but not seriously. His supporters took him seriously, but not literally. Mm, and how many right. people? How many people hear politicians promise to do something, and you say, "I don't believe that." And so he said things, and they said, "Oh, we don't believe that." But he's going to shake things up. Good for him. And a lot of people, maybe people in this room, who are tired of that elitism in the political class and in the media, say, "You know what? I like that he said this crazy ass thing that he said, and um, I don't believe that, or I don't think he should do that." But I, I love how it ties the media up in knots and drives them crazy. Right on. If that's wrong, then if they think it's wrong, then maybe it's right. A lot of people who think that. Um, do you think the the Moyne Register, Huffington Post, they took the right approach with him from the get-go of marginalizing him? Or do you think that they did something uh, that was journalistically malpractice, negligible? You know, I, I think, I don't know. I, I'm not as comfortable with the name calling. I think you just, but I think, you know, fact checking is important. It's become kind of de rigueur now in, in a way where, you know, people, um, you, where's uh, Adam's mom here? Uh, I, yeah, so I have a, a, a student, I teach a, a course in Tufts, um, and 
you know, these students are, they're savvy, they're dialed in, they're getting a lot of information, and they want they want to know what's behind the polls. They want to know what's behind various assertions. So I think you just have to, I think we just have to return to good, good journalism. Tough questioning. Um, figure out where they are, where they stand. Um, what, what are they, what's their temperament like? How would they lead? And how, how are they orienting themselves toward a changing country? It's kind of basic traditional journalism that we should return to instead of trying to think we have to do something dramatically different. So, David, now what? He's our president-elect, and, uh, you know, less than two months, a little over two months, he'll be inaugurated in Washington, D.C. He is um, in the throes of putting together a cabinet, some that is celebrated, some that is being uh, scorned for his choices. Yeah. Um, my question has, has six layers to it, but let's do one yeah. at a time. And question number one is, how does this impact us in your estimation as Americans with someone so radically different in yeah. what he's going to put together? Um, in particular, dealing with that level of closed-mindedness, which yeah. I think you know plays for us. And the second part of that is, how does it impact us as American Jews? Where, and we talked about this briefly over dinner, where that closed-mindedness can live within that own echo chamber, right. where you have people. The ZOA today has, it's either today or tomorrow, has as their guest speaker for the ZOA dinner is Steve Bannon. Yeah. And meanwhile, the likes of J Street, Terua, APEC doesn't touch these things, and other Jewish organizations with just as much a demographic are looking for ways to ensure that he never holds the post. And the ADL even came out you know, condemning mm -hmm. this appointment. How, how do we get to some sense of normalcy in this process where we get out of the echo chamber? I think we've got to hold several things in our head at, at, one, at the same time. One is, I mean, it's just an important value for me. I respect the presidency. I respect our democracy. I respect elections. And uh, this was not a military coup. This was a free and fair election, and, uh, and he won. And he deserves, as, as Hillary Clinton said very graciously, an open mind. Uh, I think that's important as, as a citizen that, that we respect, and we respect our democracy and we honor it even when it's hard. Because, you know, I'll give you an example. You may be horribly opposed to the prospect of deporting children of illegal immigrants under the DACA law. As Jews, you know, we, we welcome the stranger uh, because we were once strangers in the land of Egypt. But President Obama did that by executive order. He didn't, he didn't seek the will of Congress because it wasn't there. He did it by executive order. And what does that mean? If you lose the ballot box, then the next person can come in and undo it by executive order. That's the pitfall. So, look, I have a vested interest in the Supreme Court. Merrick Garland married my wife and me, a, mer a mentor to my wife. Think the world of him. And by the way, it's a tragedy that he won't be on the Supreme Court. He's tragedy. brilliant, and he should absolutely be there. But that's politics, and that's rough, and he'll never be on the Supreme Court. He's wanted to be there his whole life. That's politics, so we have to accept that. So I think giving him his due having an open mind, uh, but there's also the vigilance. Um, we've got to be vigilant, vigilance, the vigilance. We've got to be, we should be vigilant too. Uh, we should be vigilant in our press and as citizens. Um, and we have to look after each other. I'll tell you a story last week. I, I felt after the election, I felt, you know, there's an increased demand on my citizenship as a result of this election. Because i gotta, I got to really pay attention. As a journalist, as an analyst, I have to do this, but as a human being. I was uh, 
being driven from CNN after a morning hit by a man who drives me a lot. His name is Mohammed. He's from Pakistan. He's been in America a long time. Lovely man. And he, he commits a moving violation for sure when we're driving. And, he, and a cop comes up behind us and pulls up right next to us. And I'm on the phone with my wife, Beth. And he starts yelling at him. And I thought, you know, I've been there before. And he's going to take a little, you know, catch a little uh, yelling here. And he goes on and on and on. And at the end, he says, if I ever see you do that again, I will take everything from you. He said, if I ever see you do that again, I will take your head off. And I, I, was, I was really stunned. I said, did he really say these things? And, and I was sitting with that. And I said, well, you know, you just were talking about the increased demand of citizenship. So I wanted to reach out about this to the police department. And I couldn't figure out who to do that. So I tweeted it and tweeted the episode out. Within an hour, I got called by the Washington Post, by the field commander of the police department, and by the chief of staff of the mayor's office. And the Washington Post did a piece in which I said, look, we've just had an election where we've seen a debasement of our political discourse. And this is the demand of our citizenship. And the mayor's office apologized to him. The field commander of the police apologized and gave him his personal cell phone number in case he should ever run into a problem again. He could call him personally. And he, Mohammed was very lovely. He said, David, you know, I'm so, ha I'm so lucky to have you as a friend and thank you. And I said, look, I said, we're in this life together. I said, this country is every bit your country as it is my country. And we got to look after each other. That to me is the lesson. It is, and as Jews, and as we think about our values as Jews, to look after the stranger, to look after the immigrant, to look after our Muslim uh, neighbors, uh, and make sure that we stick together. And there's another piece to this. As the poet Wendell Berry says so beautifully, we have got to be able to imagine lives that are not like ours. And that extends to the people we disagree with, the people who we cannot possibly fathom, who could be behind Donald Trump. We have to somehow figure out and make room for those differences and respect those differences and get a sense of where they're coming from and maybe understand why they might be very happy in this moment and not sitting Shiva because they feel that there's a leader in place where they no longer feel marginalized. It's very difficult if you're confronting hate, that's a whole different situation and bigotry and ignorance. But for people who are not that, who just wanted a different path or who didn't like her, I think we got, that's part of our citizenship too is to respect those differences. I agree. I think um, it takes time for this process of healing to happen. When people get up from Shiva, uh, it doesn't bind their wounds instantly. Right. And uh, the thing about time, I told this to my mother as she was mourning uh, her husband of 53 years, the thing about time is it indeed takes time. Yeah. I used the analogy the other day that uh, if your child came home and said, I was marrying a particular partner, and you were dead set against this partner. You didn't like this person. You didn't like their values. You didn't like what they believed in. You thought they were a bad influence. You didn't like their family, all of these pieces. And then suddenly they sit, come home in this dating process and you say, I'm getting married. Normally the parents don't turn 180 degrees. It takes time to get to a place where they're walking down the aisle. And I think in both elements, that's what's happening in America. And we are used to an instant gratification of how do we embrace something that was so repulsive to us? Right. Um, or how do we, and by the way, that works on, on both sides, right? That means the other side that doesn't hear this one component. Right. And uh, I think that's, that's a big factor of, um, of what's going on in, um, in this process of how it is that we start over again. So 
Let me ask you um, one last question on this front, and then we'll open it up to some questions uh, from the crowd if we can, which is, you know, you're a journalist and you have an insatiable curiosity in general, um, but you, you do a lot of, um, of unpacking of facts, and facts are about history in most cases. But if you were a prognosticator, what do you think the next four, and then I would say 10, 12 years look like for America and American Jews in particular? Look, I think the, the really prudent thing for people in my position is to stop prognosticating. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, look, in terms of, in terms of uh, politics, I don't know. I mean, I, am, I have deep reservations about what Trump might do. I also think there's room to surprise. Um, and so I, I'm, I, I'm just hanging back and being vigilant, but also waiting to see what's possible. I think Democrats have a kind of a reordering to do, and, and they've got to dust themselves off. And by the way, so do Republicans. And, and you know, Trump could end up redefining the party in a way that uh, creates greatness for them, or it could be a d disaster, as he would say. We really don't know. We don't know. Um, you know, I think there's lots of ways of looking at um, the path of American Jews in terms of our citizenship and also what binds our community together. As, as people who, who love and have a, a, an historic and a religious connection to Israel, we nurture that relationship even if it can uh, make us uncomfortable, even as we have disagreements. And I, and I believe that we'll always have an American government that supports us in that effort. But I'm a big believer that we have to figure out what binds the community together. If it's spiritual questing, if it's tekin olam, tekin olam uh, if it's Israel, there's lots of ways to come into the community. But I do think there has to be a sense of uh, spiritual awareness that binds the community together, that gives it a sense of meaning and purpose that is not just about ethnic identity, is not just about Israel, that that seeks the comfort of community and the higher reaching of community. Um, because for young, a younger generation of Jews, as you well know, convening them is difficult. Getting them to synagogue is difficult. Getting the older ones to synagogue is also difficult. Right. And having Israel as the centerpiece of identity is not enough. And so I hope in a small way that, you know, if I'm provocative around the issue of God and spiritual questing, that's my thing. And I think there's a lot of ways in there, than pe more ways in than they realize. But I think the larger point is, what are the, what's, the, what's the glue of the community? Answering that question, which is also inclusive of the fact that demographically we're going to have a lot more intermarriage and, and a lot more people outside the faith who are going to be part of that broader circle of faith. We've got to get real with that and find lots of ways in to both observance and identity that, that keeps the community aware, vigilant, knowledgeable, spiritually connected, um, and authentic. And I think that's the path. And I think represented by your presence here, I think, and I think you articulated it beautifully, it's a time to activate our citizenship. Yeah. Uh, you did that in your journey towards faith. You activated a portal that we all have, and I think it's a good reminder to us uh, that we all have that button in front of us, and I hope we do. I want to open it up to all of you who might have a question. Um, 
I want to remind you that questions have an inflection at the end of the sentence <laughs> and uh, normally finish with a question mark. And um, <clears throat> if they are platforms or statements, I will direct you towards a few blog sites where you're welcome <laughs> to put them down. But if you have a question for David Gregory, we welcome that. So, Steve Abramo, why don't you stand up? So in terms of my own personal bias, I mean, people might divine or assign a certain motivation to me. That's been easier because I'm truly, I'm an independent politically. I have different views about different things. And I've been a journalist for so long, and that matters a lot to me. Um, I would argue that I've gotten a little edgier, um, you know, since leaving Meet the Press when I've been under a bit less scrutiny. And in the role of analyst, I can be that. And when I've been critical of Trump, for example, I defend that as, as making uh, more pointed comments based on my understanding of the presidency and seeing the presidency close up and making observations about fitness for office. So um, I, I, don't find that, I don't find it particularly difficult. I would argue I found it a little bit more difficult because this one, it was not an ideological sense, but it, it meant a lot to me that we would have a first female president. You know, I'm a real feminist, and I've become increasingly so, and that's the influence of my wife and having my daughter, you know, and, and uh, that she, she's taking it in stride, but, uh, but, you know, she wanted this, and I wanted this for her because I'm mad that, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take before she realizes that it's possible. So wrestling with something like that is tough. You know, uh, but I didn't find it that it got in the way. The larger bias, uh, of course, is present. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there a liberal bias? Absolutely. It's cu- but it's more nuanced than that. It's cultural bias. It's geographic bias. And perhaps worst of all, it's a bias toward conflict. Um, in some cases, false equivalence, which is tough because it's the, we get worked, the ref gets worked so much. Um, so I, I just, there's secularism, you know, as somebody who's become a deeper person of faith, not a, I mean, not that I've been totally accepted. It's not that. It's just that, you know, there's, there's such a secular, secular streak that runs through media culturally. So I think, I think it's all present. And I think the media as a result is incredibly fa- fragmented and it puts so much more responsibility in your on your shoulders to be really discerning about what you read what you watch what you listen to how, and how you evaluate that in terms of whether it's credible and one of the byproducts of bias and fragmentation is there are lots of people who simply do not believe information so we have in our political discourse a lot of people who don't even agree on what the facts are and that's dangerous because in some cases you should be able to agree on that. Uh, but that fragmentation, you know, has created uh, a lot of problems. But it is, it is in response to a tremendous demand for that very fragmentation, interestingly. Please. Why don't you stand up also? Her son is in my class at Tufts. He's a terrific student. <laughs> Uh, 
Yeah. Right. But when you're young and you see him, he's so passionate about all this. You were just saying about the different news stations that they, you know, some people believe, some people challenge. You know, he would just say Fox is just all blown. You know, this is his. We've never really talked about that, but he formed some opinion. Yeah. Tough crowd. Well, I mean, first of all, there's there's nobody rioting so far as I can tell. There have been massive demonstrations. Uh, I mean, it hasn't. It's mostly peaceful. I mean, these are people exercising their First Amendment rights. Um, again, this was not a military coup, so. It, it, you know that kind of activism may have been best placed in voting, and I bet many many of them probably did vote. I mean, I don't think the issue for Hillary Clinton was in New York City, or in Portland, Oregon, uh, or in Seattle, or in Los Angeles. But um, look, I think, and as I said to your son and and uh, the other students yesterday, I said this will be a crushing moment in your your the life your life in our country, because you have experienced for the first time why elections matter and why citizenship matters, why civic engagement matters. And you know what? It's not always going to go your way. And you're going to have a sense of certainty about what the world is and how it should be, and you're going to find people disagree with you. And maybe they disagree with you to such an extent that a stunning election result will occur. And it's not the first time we've been here. I mean, there may have been people in this room, uh, although this is a very young crowd, who were for George McGovern. And uh, we're very passionate about George McGovern. Didn't go so well. And that was a crushing blow and, and far more uh, much of a landslide. When Reagan was elected, there was a, a lot of those feelings. So, you know, this, I think, as I said to them, is a searing moment to really absorb uh, the consequential nature of our politics. And, and I would just dovetail on that. I read something that said... Uh, the overwhelming majority of 18 to 27-year-olds voted on the liberal side of the ballots on all the components of the ballots. Right. And I think also some of the frustration was shown not only on the presidential side. Everyone was talking down-ballot uh, voting, and none of that went in any predicted way. And right. I think that that's represented. By the way, they, I think 37% of millennials voted for Trump, even though they, were, they, were, they typically vote Democrat. Right. It wasn't nobody, and, uh, and their participation yeah. was, was down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's do Barry. Right. 
Yeah. Well, that's lovely of you, but there was only one. And by the way, that was a time that was a, he was a center left guy and the media was center left. And, and Nixon wanted to find a balance between the kind of the, the liberal media elite that was represented by Walter Cronkite and others. So the, in many ways, this modern media era was uh, was a response to all of that. And 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 by the way, you know, th- that was a kind of centralized um, media that may be glorified, but there were a lot of people that were left out of that, including within the media. I don't remember how many women were there. Oh, yeah, not a lot who actually presented the news, nor minorities. So we're a different country now. And I would say, first of all, you're absolutely right. It's a fair criticism. It's a really important question. Part of the answer is citizenship. There's a lot of good journalism out there. It's not our fault that people are reading it and going, well, you know, we're still going to not believe it. I mean, so this becomes a test of citizenship, too, to create an obje- a reality that is an objective reality. But we have to be clear to make sure or careful to make sure that what we view as reality is not the reality we're creating and that doesn't have a different you know, point of view. And this is why, look, we're in a, we're in a, a changing country with different uh, political views that are hard fought and, uh, and, and that affects a lot of that. But there's so much distrust in institutions, government, uh, finance, the banks, media, uh, a sense that people don't deliver for us. And I think in some cases we've got to invest a little bit more of our own human capital in believing in those institutions once again. And they have to be worthy of our trust, ourselves included. Uh, Seth. I just think in this current moment, there's a sense that our political class is unable to meet the challenges that the country faces. Uh, and there's tremendous, um, there's tremendous uh, technological disruption that has an economic effect that creates a lot of winners and losers, but more losers than winners. And so there's a lot of concern about how to uh, particularly get back into the economy that may have left you out. Um, and not just deep divisions, but, um, but a sense of distrust. And then, you know, I think a cultural environment where when the right person can come along. I mean, I think it is interesting. We have to look ourselves in the, in the mirror and say, we are part of a cultural breakdown in our entertainment culture that is a lot cruder. I mean, there's things I can tell you as a parent with young kids, there are certain movies they watch I wish they wouldn't. I thought I would have been more effective keeping them from, and I can't. I used to be able to read my son's texts, and now there's so much I can't keep up with all the ways that he can have communications that I can't even track and get exposed to things that I don't want him exposed to. So So it's crude, and there's things that there's a permissiveness in our culture that we have come to accept a way that we speak to each other, uh, things that we tolerate in the public square that we just come to expect. And then we're so, we're so horrified that this gets to be part of our political discourse because Donald Trump brings it in. Well, in part, he's tapping into that, that cultural discourse and bringing it into politics. And it was shocking and it was crude. 
but he was able to harness it in a way, and I think he's a unique figure uh, in that regard. So I just think that is a, a snapshot of the conditions that allowed for this. And by the way, we're also, this transformation that's going on demographically, we are a changing country. We've had very fast advancements in gay rights. We have um, uh, uh, Latinos in this country, African Americans and women who are assuming new realms of power like no, no, no other time in our history. And, and as we're going through those transformations, which is inexorable, there is all this tension along the way. And it, it can't be stopped, but I think we're at a point where it's going to zig and zag a little bit before it keeps progressing. And I think that we're seeing our politics resisting what has been very fast change in that direction. People thought, oh, okay, Obama, first black president, uh, a much different coalition of minorities and young people and women, and that, that that would always be true in politics. And it is true. And if the election were just a little bit different, then she would have won. And then we would have all been saying, see, it's all true. You know, Latinos. So it's still true. It just, what he was able to do was a little truer this time around, and it just speaks to that tension. That was very well said. Uh, Bonnie Hennick. I, we can't hear you. Yeah. Yeah. This is the question about the implication of WikiLeaks. Um, it's really disturbing. There's no question. I mean, look, we had a, a foreign government, you know, uh, stealing this information and then having um, uh, an ally leak it. I think the implications for journalism are really severe, uh, for our public life is severe. And I haven't worked that out in my mind about, you know, the fact that we were all kind of reporting on it and marinating in, in, in this information, I think, was wrong. Um, but it's very hard to stop. So, you know, there are non-state actors. There are entities that can do us harm, that can, you know, uh, that can physically attack us, who can attack us uh, through cyber crimes. I mean, I think, you know, it, it, it's part of our life. But I think we should also be happy about the fact that we had a lot of potential concerns in this election, and they did not come to pass in terms of our infrastructure and our election, our election system. So, um, you know, that was also good news. It's interesting in Judaism that there is an answer to WikiLeaks, and it tells us lulav hagazol pasul, means a stolen lulav, a stolen Torah scroll, a stolen tefillin you're not allowed to use for prayer purposes. Mm. So if I wanted to pray and I stole someone's tefillin in order to pray, it's told us that God doesn't hear that prayer. And I, I, I spoke about this a few, a few different times. I marveled at the fact that every media outlet, left, right, center, would start off their news by saying, we got a hold of Colin Powell's private <laughs> personal emails. And here's what it says. Right? The whole sense of privacy just right. was, was evaporated, it was gone in an instant, and it went right to the heart of the issue. And uh, To me, I turn to Judaism a lot on that question. Mr. Grabart. First, Rabbi, I have a comment on what you said a couple of times about the privacy, which obviously we often agree with. No, st stand up. Stand up. Well, we often agree with that. If you're giving me praise, just well, go louder. As <laughs> well. <laughs> what about uh, the Pentagon Papers? Same concept. Saved a lot of lives by exposing... <laughs> Such a financial incentive for the uh, cable networks to, 
would be part of this. But maybe yeah. horse race where if they were credible, they would have discredited uh, Donald Trump 15 months ago. Well, first of all, I mean, you, the, the criticism you, you allude to, there's no question that, that the media, um, I think, treated Trump like a phenomenon instead of scrutinizing him appropriately in the beginning. But there was still a lot of good journalism about him, and he was, he was uh, certainly scrutinized all the way through, and a lot of people you know, disregarded it uh, and voted for him anyway. So there's that. Look, those are all valid criticisms. I mean, I, I don't know about the Scarborough thing, is, uh, or I, I think I know what you're talking about, the Megan Kellen thing. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, what Donna did was wrong. I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but there's, you know, I have a lot of respect for her, and she's a friend, and, and what she did was wrong. Sorry? Right, well, it, you're right. It is hard. And, it, you know, these things get uh, can get murky, you know, and kind of impure. You know, if you, if you, if you have people who are, who are analysts, for example, <coughs> excuse me, or who are... Uh, you know, insiders in some way. They can help you negotiate with the campaigns to get debates, for example. <coughs> but I will tell you, these things do not happen all the time. Mistakes do happen, uh, but you, your role is to not watch, is to make a different decision, is to deem that news source as lacking credibility. And that's a fair response. You get to make that response. And it's the responsibility of the news organization in question is to identify it, apologize for it, and fix the problem. And, um, you know, I think that's, you know, what, what CNN has done. I, there's no systemic uh, issue there. But that was a bad judgment. And, again, you have a big enterprise, and it's hard, to keep a, it's hard to keep a lid on all of this all the time. But, look, the media is replete with problems and, and credibility questions. Um, oh, thank you. And it's it's... You know, he's just big organizations. Things like this are going to happen. Uh, Robert Heidenberg. Oh, sure. So, David, in, in the first part of today's uh, tonight's discussion, you were very uh, open and honest and revealing about your feelings about God and faith and religion, the relationship with your father. So I just have to ask you, because a lot of people that I know are really scared uh, at this moment. Mm -hmm. So my question really is very simple. Are you scared? Are your children scared? Uh, no, I, I'm not scared. I mean, I'm I'm concerned about some things about Trump's fitness and decisions he could make. So, I, yeah, I mean, I have areas of concern. Um, but I just, you know, I, I I don't know what to be other than hopeful and to rely on uh, our system and our democracy um, and to to have history be a guide. I mean. You know, we survived the Civil War in this country, for Christ's sake. I mean, I, we, we're a strong country. We can get through this. And we can get through it with good journalism, with checks and balances, with good citizenry. And that's what I tell my kids. And I say to them what I've said here. And we watched Trump on 60 Minutes the other night. And uh, my, my daughter told a joke about, you know, some negative joke about Trump that she heard at school, not surprisingly. <laughs> a, um a liberal bastion as it is. And I said, you know what, honey? I said, we don't tell jokes like that because in our home, it's a family value that we respect the presidency. And the presidency is bigger than a person. And it's, it's part of, it's an institution that makes our country great. So we are going to give him an opportunity and we are going to, uh, we're going to support our president. We'll pray for our president and he should be held accountable if he if he does things that are wrong, and we should exercise our rights as citizens. So I, I uh, no, I am uh, look. 
I'm certainly more concerned than I would be in a normal election cycle, uh, without a doubt. And, um, and, and I'm stunned, and I still am stunned every morning when I wake up. Um, but, I, uh, but no, I, I, just, I, I wouldn't say that I'm scared. If, I, I say this with, with the utmost of sincerity. If there are people who feel like Barry that they're arising from Shiva, I think those words are like a bomb for people because they're, they're realistic and they're real and they're soothing. And that's ultimately what you want when you begin that process again. So thank you. And now the other side of that is people ask me before the election, they said, oh, I'm so worried. Tell me everything's going to be okay. And I said, oh, everything's going to be okay. She's going to win. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> so that was like a bomb too. And then but what I added is I said, by the way, if I'm wrong, we got bigger problems than me being wrong. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. Neil Chalfin. Yeah, I just think the, the notion of the fourth estate presumes something that's no longer true and that there's this center of gravity. I mean, the, the, the gentleman who brought up the Walter Cronkite di days, that's when there was a center of gravity and it was the networks and it was the big dailies. I mean, media is so much more fragmented. Media is, you know, if you have a Twitter handle, you know, then you're a journalist, uh, quote unquote. You're part of the fourth estate because you have an ability to connect to other people and share and curate information and therefore have influence. That's the, that's the environment we're in. So it's disaggregated, it's fragmented, it's ideological, it's, it's got bias on all different levels. It's a kind of vast ocean of news and information that's curated and shared and connected. I think that the biggest platforms and those with the most authority and the most influence go back. And, and by the way, it's, I, I, I don't think we can it should indict the media beyond, you know, for like a capital offense here. Um, I've identified where I think there are problems. I think journalism reflects what's happening. It can enlighten. It can shine a light on something that you don't know about, that you should know about. It can shine a, shine a light on something that, that should be celebrated, and it can inspire. And I think that good journalism should just be focused on doing those things amid all these other pressures. Look, we're businesses, we're out there making money, we're losing money, papers are trying to survive, trying to adapt to audiences. That's, I mean, one reality is true. The fourth estate is not losing money anymore. Nobody's getting up and saying, oh, it's okay if you should lose money as long as we're a public service. But, there are, but, but I will tell you that there are so many journalists who I know who do believe it's a calling, who do believe it's a, a public service, and, and take it extremely seriously. And we should have faith in that. I have faith in that, and I realize that there's a lot of crap out there too. Um, it's just, it's part of the mix. Mr. Singer. Reverting back to the, to the prior question, um, I think a lot of us agree with you fully on respecting the presidency, respecting the results, hoping for the best. But in a room full of Jews, somebody's got to ask, how is that different from what happened in Weimar 80 years ago? Yeah, uh, look, I, I, I don't have a complete answer other than... Did you all hear the question? How, yeah, I mean, how is it different from the rise of fascism in Germany? Uh, my general rule, until disproven, is that I only like, um, you know, comparing fascism and Hitler to one thing, and that's fascism and Hitler. 
um, and I, because I think it's so highly charged. But the honest answer is I don't know. And I think that in a democracy, we have got to be vigilant. We see the, 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 the rising tension and the, the, the revival of anti-Semitism in Europe and, and around America. And maybe we can make, you know, there should be extra vigilance and awareness out of some of this anti-Semitism that's coursing through, you know, social media, that it's out in the open a little bit more. Um, you know, I have no reason to believe that Donald Trump is a uh, fascist. Having said that, I am very uncomfortable with um, that kind of marinating and uh, tyrant talk and authoritarianism, uh, as I think uh, you are. So, um, you know, I, I, we have to believe that history informs and history teaches, even as it repeats itself, and that we have a government of responsible actors who would put a... Uh, um, uh, who would prevent the, those kinds of tendencies, and that the citizenry would, would uh, react uh, differently. That's the best I can do, uh, because I just don't know beyond that. We have time for uh, two more questions. Please. You know, I mean, I think that's a very Jewish question, and there's a very Jewish response. No, but I'm, but I mean it as a Jewish response. Social activism. I mean, that's what I mean. Is a very, I mean, it was grounded in the spirit of social activism, which is very Jewish to me. You organize, you mobilize, you understand that as a citizen, your voice matters, your community matters, and that that you can make your voice heard. You can give money, you can give of your time to organizations that are activists around issues that you care about, and you can let your voice be heard. I, that's the democratic process. You can march in the streets, you can vote. You can, I mean, I think those are the things that are available to us and should be availed uh, uh, by, by every citizen, understanding that the stakes are high. Well, I mean, that's, those are the legal ways. I mean, I, you know, I, I, and those are the ways I believe in. And I, I, no, but I'm not trying to be flip. In other words, I, I, I'm not, I, I wouldn't suggest anything else. I don't think that would be appropriate. And, and anybody who, and by the way, Donald Trump makes some of these jokes about, you know, about guns and violence and things like that. Uh, I, I reject that categorically. And, uh, and I don't believe that that's an American response uh, because I think an American response is to respect uh, I mean, think of, what, think of what Barack Obama did, our president. This man wrote in a national promises, prominence on the back of a racist lie by questioning his citizenship with no basis whatsoever at all. This guy won the election, and Barack Obama had him. I mean, years ago, they would have killed each other in Hoboken in a duel. <laughs> but he said, no, I will invite you into the Oval Office because I, as president, revere the presidency, and that's what we do in this country. So all the things that I'm talking about is what we do in this country and have done to great effect to overcome hatred and division and, and political disagreement. We, we, you know, we're activists. And I think some of this, you know, I think some of these feelings should be leavened with, okay, you know, your side lost. Give it a shot. See what happens. And if it's not satisfactory, then get to work. I guarantee you 
I know other people who are already getting to work in the political class because the primary in 2020 started at about 3 a.m. on election night. <laughs> and, there are, and people are already raising money and getting to work for 2018. And maybe you want to join those forces. Yeah. Yeah, you, you can, absolutely. Uh, last question, Bruce Feldman. What? But the media has this very limited opportunity. Yeah. Because the New York Times couldn't have done more. They couldn't have done more. They devoted almost everything they had. And we read it, and what did it get us? Okay, we got what we got. Okay. So they, they, also, they also took down Hillary pretty hard on the email story. On everything. Yeah. Right? But the debates really did not get through, I think. Well, I would just I would disagree with you. First of all, she won all of the debates, just like John Kerry won the debates in 2004, and apparently it doesn't predict outcomes. Two, I, I do think, your question was, do I think the journalists who, who moderated the presidential, do I think they were vigilant? I actually do. I think Chris Wallace did a great job. Yep. I, th I really thought they all did a great job. Think about what you learned from those debates about his temperament, you know, all these moments about, you know, wrong and <laughs> nasty woman and all these things. I mean, there's lots of stuff that was there that you could have voted on. And the truth is, people did vote on those issues. They were determinative. The result of those debates sent Trump into a death spiral. They really did. And the Jim Comey letter pulled him out of that. And then, and there was a consolidation among Republicans. He got more... Um, Discipline down the stretch. Uh, you had Republicans who came home. The Comey effect. All these things happened. And what was happening all along, which is that his base of support was not turned off by those things that other people were turned off by. And so he was really able to turn people out. So I think they did the job. And I think that um, they did what, you know, they held them both accountable. So uh, I, uh, I want to close with something biblical, if I can. Um, Abraham in this week's Parsha of Lech Lecha that we just finished reading begins on behalf of the Jewish people with the journey. But he's actually not the first person in the Bible to journey. In fact, Adam and Eve are banished from the Garden of Eden. Noah has to take a journey on an ark to what will be a new world and a new land. And then we're introduced to Abraham. And then the process of journey begins from Jacob to Joseph all the way to Moses. And the book even ends at the end of Deuteronomy without Moses arriving to the promised land, which means that the entire Jewish narrative happens without arrival. We are constantly moving. We're always dynamic. And I think it's through that dynamism that we grow. I think that's the inherent lesson God was trying to show us. And I just want to pause for a moment, David, and thank you for sharing with all of us the journey that you have gone on and the growth that you have taken that has been nothing short of inspirational. Thank you. Uh, both as a journalist, as a Jew, as a father, as a citizen, it has been a blessing, uh, I think, to everyone who is blessed to see you on television and to learn with you and about you. And I only pray that those journeys continue to strengthen the fabric of your family and your life and your connection with God, and that we keep learning from you in the days and years to come. What a blessing to have you. Thank you. Thank you.